Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I, I, I always, you know, sort of growing up, I always heard the like the classic, you know, in, in a musical, people sing when their emotions are too big to simply be expressed in words. And I've always felt like, sure, sometimes, but maybe sometimes people sing to try to help understand what they're feeling. It's not about it's that it's so big. It's like, I don't know what the hell I'm experiencing right now. I don't know what this is. Yeah. And so I, and so much of my, my stuff is that. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are discussing the musical Be More Chill, and we're doing it with one of the people who wrote it. He was Tony nominated for Best Original Score for Writing Music and Lyrics for the show that ended up with quite a loyal fan following, and I hope they're all listening to this today because his latest musical, the untitled unauthorized Hunter S. Thompson musical, opens at the La Jolla Playhouse in beautiful Southern California. Everyone, please welcome Joe Iconis. Yay! Hello, everyone. So happy to be here. Joe, welcome to the podcast. I'm so grateful you're here. I mean, you're not here here. (laughs) We are chatting virtually. Are you already in La Jolla? Uh, very much so. Yeah, we uh, we we're in the middle of our second week of rehearsal oh, right now. Yeah, and so uh, our previews begin uh, August twenty ninth. We're sort of towards the beginning of the process right now, but we're we're in it. We're deep in it. That's exciting. Yeah. Oh my gosh, are you you're you're East Coast though? So how are you enjoying? My beautiful Southern California. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm very East Coast. I'm like the most New York, <laughs> New York centric human who has ever lived, uh, and so I, I like it. I'm, I'm coming to, I'm coming to terms with California, and I'm enjoying it. I like the sun. I think that's that's really nice. That's enjoyable. And I've, I've heard, yeah, I've heard that there's water nearby, but I have yet to see the water. <laughs> you're, you're literally on one of the most beautiful parts of the West Coast, and you're not stuck, but you are definitely in a uh, inside in the theater all day. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm literally speaking to you right now from a, from the blackest room that there could possibly ever be. <laughs> Everything in the room is black, including my, my clothes. And so it's, yeah, you know, I'm, I think once we open, I'll be able to like explore a little bit and like, you know, see some of the sights. Because yeah, everyone, everyone who I tell them I'm in La Jolla is like, oh, it's the most beautiful place on earth. And I'm just like, oh, I've seen the inside of a theater in a strip mall. That's all I've seen. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot of your work is often about outsiders, misfits, counterculture even. It's certainly Mm -hmm. true of Be More Chill. And it feels, even though I haven't seen it, it feels true of Hunter S. Thompson, who's the real life subject of your new show. Yeah, very Um, much so. So is that, I mean, for lack of a better question, why... Is that a reflection of how you feel about yourself? Is it just who you like to write about? What do you think? Yeah, it's, you know, it's something that I don't think I I ever set out to have a career or a body of work that that focuses solely on on stories of as misfits and outsiders. 
I think I just kind of naturally gravitate toward those type of characters and toward those mm -hmm. type of people. And, you know, when I, when I sort of first started out, I, uh, I, I, I was just really drawn to stories of people who don't typically get musicals written about them. You know, I, I feel like mm. so many musicals and musical theater are shows that are about people who have done incredible things or, you know, they're shows about people who, who win wars and they're people who are Greek gods and goddesses. And it's these, these sort of huge, <laughs> larger than life characters. And, and a lot of times uh, what they, these characters experience is some kind of triumph. And I guess I've always been like, Oh, well, why can't we have musicals about people who are not special? You know, like people who are just sort of absolutely normal um, who are experiencing everyday life, which I think is just as dramatic as, you know, the French Revolution or a ghost on the loose in the Paris Opera House. You know, I think real life is just as, <laughs> as just as fraught and, and traumatic as all of those things. And so I think that I just sort of naturally started writing stuff about uh, these types of characters and situations. And, and, um, it's just, it, you know, it's grown into a, it's grown into a whole body of work. And I think that there are, you know, there are plenty of people who are writing about extraordinary individuals who triumph. And I, I feel like I'm writing about the, the rest of the people in the world. <laughs> I love that, though. And yeah. because it's also an art form that attracts all of us misfits. You know, like we've somehow yeah. found a place together, no matter who you are, whether you're doing tech or wardrobe or you're on stage we're all just a, a bunch of misfit fits who who like playing in the sand together so it in some way it's almost meta uh the of the art form itself oh it is you know and so many of my musicals whether they're whether they're literally about this or you know sort of lightly about this they're about people who feel like they don't belong trying to find a place where they do sometimes a literal place and sometimes a, a but more often than not, the, the place where they belong is with another group of people who also feel like they don't belong. Mm. And that's just, mm -hmm. that's, that's theater, you know, that's, that is, that is why I started doing theater. And that's why I continue to do theater. And it's like, because you're making these families, you're making these places where it's people who have similar ideas about things you don't quite fit in in the real world can, can, you know, can make their own world. Um, and yeah. A lifelong lover of musical theater. When did you discover it? Uh, uh, lifelong, yeah. I I I discovered musical theater when I was six years old. For my sixth birthday, my father took me to see the original production of Little Shop of Horrors, the Orpheum Theater. <sighs> they were in their last couple months, and I uh, I just fell in love with the art form of musical theater. You know, I love wow. Little Shop, but it was really just this idea of like being in a room and people telling a story and there being music. And I just was like immediately like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my whole life. And, you know, I didn't come from like a, a, a theatery family. Um, I'm, sure. I'm, so I'm from Long Island. And so I, you know, I, I, what I had was proximity to the city, but no one in my family was really like an artsy person or someone who, you know, certainly no one was in, in the theater or in entertainment. Um, but they were really supportive of me being this little kid who who loved musicals. And so, yeah, so I've been obsessed with musical theater since I was a wee lad, for sure. That's adorable and also kind of blows my mind because I get such Little Shop vibes from Be More Chill. 
Oh yeah. I don't yeah. I don't know if that was on purpose, but there's the there's obviously like the theremin fifties sci-fi sound mm-hmm. to it, right? The the B movie science fiction. Mm-hmm. There's the there's a little bit of eighties and nineties, but then also from a plot standpoint, you're instead of an Audrey two, it's a computer. It's technology that, that oh, you're yeah. selling your soul to. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in the same way that Little Shop is kind of is kind of like the Faustian. <clears throat> oh, for the, sure. You know, the Faustian story. Uh, you know, it's, so is so is Be More Chill. Uh, yeah. What's so funny is that Be More Chill is so obviously, you know, Little Shop inspired. But myself and Joe Trace, uh, the book writer who's also a big Little Shop fan, we never ever consciously did it like we never talked about it and it wasn't oh until... I, that's so cool though I yeah love that like stuff. truly it wasn't until the first reading of it that we were like oh we just wrote our own <laughs> version of little shop like truly we didn't know and it yeah. seems so silly and it's one of those things where it's like we're both like proud of it like we've never you know we once we sort of realized Absolutely. that we were we were like oh yeah like this is you know we will happily be like we were greatly inspired by little shop of hearts and it influenced us but we just never did it consciously just couldn't help it it also is it's just so profound. Like we are what we love and we are the influences yeah. of the art that we take in. And it's not, and it's nothing less beautiful than that. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love when I see a show and I'm like, Oh, these people were really inspired by, you know, this other piece of art. And I think there's a big mm-hmm. difference. There's a difference between people being inspired by, you know, art or styles of music or whatever, and people just, you know, straight up ripping them off, which I also see sure. quite a bit, you know, where it's like, oh, well, wow, cool. <laughs> great, great job, like, quote unquote, referencing that, you know, like Backstreet Boys song. You're like literally just, you know, ripping it off. I've seen that so many times in musicals. So that's the, that's always the hope that I'm, you know, that I'm like, sure. I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm taking in the influences and then, um, and then, you know, I, and transforming them as opposed to just regurgitating. That's what I try to do. So before we jump more into Be More Chill, talk to me a little bit about Hunter S. Thompson, because I'm really fascinated what this show is. Yeah. I mean, the title alone, <laughs> right? I know it's a real batshit title, but I, I just have always <laughs> I've, I've really felt like that's just what the show needs to be called. It's, so it's um, the untitled, unauthorized Hunter S. Thompson musical is about Hunter S. Thompson, who was a uh, counterculture hero. Um, and a real sort of renegade outlaw journalist uh, who rose to prominence in the in the late 60s and early 70s. And he wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, among many other mm-hmm. things, and sort of created the style of journalism called gonzo journalism, uh, which is where the writer puts uh, themselves at the center of the story. And it's this very sort of subjective take on news. And that's what which he's sort is- of most famous for. I mean, and and we're kind of suffering through some of the <laughs> consequences of that, right? Because all of a sudden, instead of being objective, we're we're taking in people's opinions. Yeah, I mean, and what's so wild? What's so wild is that when you know when Hunter S. Thompson, when he sort of you know cracked this this open, and you know Gonzo journalism became the sort of thing that people were you know talking talking about and defining. Uh, it had really sort of, you know, positive connotations. And if anything, it felt like a product of liberal thinkers. It felt like a product mm. of people people on the left 
being like, you know, the government is lying to us and a way that we can actually get the truth out there and get people motivated is by sort of filtering the truth through our opinion and our take. And then that becomes more truthful than just laying out the facts. And it's so wild to like, you know, read all of this stuff and to see how that idea of the truth is the truth is actually opinion, how that mutates. And then, you know, now we're like living in this world where people are, you know, disputing facts. And it so facts. feels yeah. like, yeah, and it so feels like, um, you know, the fake news idea is completely in the world of the, you know, of the right and the conservatives. And it's just such a it's such a shift. And I think that's something that the show really really sort of tackles that it's like, oh, this guy, you know, he wrote all this stuff and he, and he broke new ground, you know, and the effects of that haven't all been positive. And it's actually really kind of sticky, the situation that we're in now, you know, that is partly because of him. And so the show very much is aware of that and, and tries to, you know, talk about it. <laughs> That's cool. Sometimes when we look back at the 60s, there is an idealism that we project onto free thinkers and free love without maybe taking into account that those people grew up and became Wall Street. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. so I, I love this. I love that there's nuance there. That's cool. there's Yeah, there's definite nuance there. And, you know, I'm, um, I feel like a lot of times with biomusicals, we're sort of used to seeing biomusicals of people who the musical itself decides were really great people. And they never really did anything <laughs> bad. And in a biomusical, typically... If the, the subject of that musical does something bad, you know, it happens in act two when they have to have a crisis of faith and then they're redeemed and then everything is great at the end. And we're like, oh, we're celebrating this person who made the world a better place. And this show is like, so not that, you know, it's yes. like so the opposite. Um, and I was really obsessed with this idea of like, I, I don't want this to be a celebration of this man and I don't want this to to be a condemnation of this man. I want to just present this character who's really complex and who really you know it is contradicting himself like human beings actually do and I want to just explore what that means. And so uh it's I'm I'm really I'm really interested and completely terrified to see how people <laughs> react to this this musical, you know, because we're like, we never say this was a good man or this was a bad man. And it's just kind of like, here is this guy. And he's, he's a really, you know, complex, complicated character. And like, what do you think about him? Um, and so we'll see how that goes over with the musical theater crowd. Hey, listeners, have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor Meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii. So now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell. And now it's up to you it's up to you to try it and let me know how it is because it's May and we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together and Factors Fresh Never Frozen Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50. That's musical theater with an ER. And use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. So now let's go back in time a little bit. How, like, how did Be More Chill come about? 
Did you read the novel? Because it is based on a novel. Be More Chill came about when my agent at the time, Scott, uh, handed me the book of Be More Chill, the original Ned Vizzini, uh, May He Rest in Peace novel. Scott had read it and thought that I would be into it. And he really, he didn't put any pressure on it. He just said, I read this book and it reminded me of you. You should read it and just see if it sparks anything for you. He wasn't like, oh, this definitely needs to be a musical or this needs to be a you know movie or whatever. He was like, just read it and see what, you know, see if you have taken any inspiration from this. And so I read it and I immediately felt, oh, this, this absolutely should be a musical. And immediately I was like, I know exactly how to do this. I know how to make this a musical. And oh, wow. I I immediately got so excited about this idea of doing this kind of mashup of like teen uh, science fiction and horror tropes from both the like 50s monster movie stuff and the 80s, like, you know, John Carpenter Halloween stuff. Uh, it all just kind of like, oh, came. wow, I didn't even think about that. But of course, John Carpenter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's all he's in the score. It's when, yeah, I mean, John Carpenter is like, John Carpenter's the most in the score, like from the, the literal sounds of the synths to a lot of the, a lot of the underscoring in Be More Chill, of which there is a, a, a tremendous amount. It's all, you know, very, very explicitly and, and lovingly referencing John Carpenter film scores. And when we first were, were starting out, I used to describe it as um, John, John Hughes meets John Carpenter. I love that. I, okay, I had this conversation like years ago, back when we did an episode on Heathers. Mm. And I I think I've had it a couple of times since, but I've never had it with someone who actually wrote the musical. So I, I wanted to give it to you. In like the first 75 years of our musical theater art form, the mm. closest we got to exploring high school life was Greece. Yeah. Right? And even, I mean, that is ramalamalama, ka-ding-a-ding-ding-ding-dong, right? Like that's yeah. as close as we got. Yeah. And then somehow we hit 2000 and then most musicals include a high school experience. Mm -hmm. It's this really dramatic pivot. And I have my own ideas as to why that is. But what do you think? Why do you think a new generation of writers were really interested in the teenage high school experience? Oh, you know, I think that it's probably a few things. You know, I feel like once this kind of idea of what we know is like new musical theater started to become a thing, which I feel like really was galvanized around Rent, right? Like it's like Rent all of mm. a sudden felt like Rent felt like Young. The, the first show, yeah, in a really long time that was that was youth driven. And so even though Rent isn't a high school show, the appeal was there for high school kids, right? And so then Rent kind of fed into like the Jason Robert Brown stuff. And I feel like Jason Robert Brown is a huge sort of turning point in musical theater mm. where, you know, he was he was really sort of bridging the gap between like sort of classic musical theater writing and the slightly more modern pop sound. Yeah. And I feel like that that intersected with YouTube and with streaming. And, well, not streaming yet, but like but with YouTube. And I think then YouTube all of a sudden gave people access to musical theater and especially young people access to musical theater that they hadn't had before. And so that, that to me feels like, Oh, it's a very natural kind of thing then that all of a sudden, you know, we start to see more and more things about young people because young people 
themselves are starting to not only write shows, but they're able to get their material out in the world in a way that you used to, you know, not really be able to get your material out in the world unless you were literally living in New York City and like playing the clubs and meeting producers. And so I think with the sort of, you know, democratization of media and material, you know, it's all of those things combined. And the, the result was more musicals about young people. And then, and then as soon as you had some of them start to become, you know, hits like Spring Awakening and all, sure. you know, those sorts of shows, then it's just like the old people want in because they want to, number one, feel cool. And number two, they want to make money. And so then it's just like, yeah, of course we're going to write musicals about young people because it makes us uncool old musical theater writers feel so special <laughs> and so hip and we can make a lot of money from it. And so that's why it's like then, you know, all of these big corporate musicals that pretend not to be corporate but are like that they're making from the movies, they all involve young people because all the people that make those musicals, they want to make a lot of money. And it's it's been really interesting to kind of see the the turn there. I'm, yeah. Okay. I'm, my mind's kind of blown because I didn't even think about this. The importance of just youth and art in general, right? Like yeah. if you want energy, if you want momentum yeah. about a, a specific art form, like it's going to come from the youth. It's not going to come from the old people falling asleep during the matinee, you know, no offense. Yeah, no, I, I am currently performing for full houses of <laughs> people who have fallen asleep during the first act. <laughs> and I'm very grateful people. for them. Yeah. Yeah. But, but still like, that's really beautiful. I had always kind of seen it as, you know, there was a, there, an older generation where until you had a house and kids and a career, mm -hmm. your perspective on ideas didn't matter whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And then we have like a new generation of writers who <laughs> maybe on some level without even knowing it, realize oh i'm still that kid yes i have whatever i have the wife and the picket fence and whatever but inside me is still that high school kid with all of the same insecurities and all the same stuff and so maybe it's a, a coming together of the old and young like maybe we are still ourselves from high school all the way to adulthood you know yeah yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and I think that that's all, that's all part of it. I mean, for me, you know, the first musical that I ever wrote, that I wrote in 2005, the first draft, was The Black Suits. And that's a musical about a high school garage band. And I've, you mm. know, and I've written, I've, I've written many musicals about, uh, I've, I've written many musicals, period. And some of those musicals are about, <laughs> yes, you, you know, about adults. <laughs> And some of those musicals are about, you know, I have a musical about a woman in her late 60s, early 70s. And I have and I have musicals about about teenagers. And I've always liked writing musicals about teenagers because um, they, I, you know, a teenager is it, they're just miniature adults. You know, I don't think of yes, teens. Exactly. As like, That's such a great way of saying it. Yeah, I don't think of teens as like a different species of people, which is how I see them. <laughs> I see them written quite often in in musicals. Amen, absolutely. Uh, but and I and they, I think the thing that's amazing about teen, most teenagers is that they they typically, you know, it's like they have all the, the they have all the feelings and all the, the all of the the, the hangups and the whatevers of adults. They just don't always have the vocabulary to express those things. And so mm. for for me. Oof writing you know writing musical musical theater material for young people it's it's like how do i use 
the form of musical theater to try to help this character find the language find to, the words to express yeah. what they're feeling you know um and i i just love that about young people and what i also love about young people is that they don't they have not yet built up the walls that we naturally build up as adults because every day that you're alive on this earth you learn something and with that thing that you learn you have like both wisdom and you also have you have a, a trepidation you have a wall you have a thing that that now it's in your head oh if i do this then that will happen and it's just that it's just by you know virtue of living and so like the younger you are the 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 less you have that for you know for worse but for better and so i just i really mm. i really enjoy writing writing young people characters that's, for that reason i'm so glad i asked you this question because that's kind of the best answer ever and i never need to ask it again <laughs> oh good um, thanks yay thank Check you <laughs> okay so you knew exactly how to write this musical yeah please pronounce the name of your book writer Trace, Joe, Joe Trace. Trace, okay, because yeah. it's spelled T-R-A-C-Z, and I had no idea. I know, so, uh, Joe Tracks. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, amazing book writer, though. He oh, Emmy-nominated, so uh, did that Netflix series, Unfortunate Events. Like, mm-hmm. really terrific writer. You guys work together. It seems like you had a great working relationship. Uh, no. When does the... Oh, no, him. that's too bad. Yeah. Okay, well, that's I, I that's hate terrible. him. We're in it, yeah. We're very. Is he in the room right now? He's not in the room right now, but he is literally. (laughs) He literally just texted me. It's (laughs) yeah. He's such a he's such a nerd. He no, I I love Joe Trace very much. Joe Trace also wrote. um, He wrote the Lightning Thief musical with one of my best friends, Robert Kiki. Yeah, and so one of our stage managers here was wearing a Lightning Thief T-shirt, and so I sent him a picture, and he and he just texted me. Hunter S. Thompson was definitely a child of Dionysus. 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 (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you could go either way. Mm -hmm. That's so. That's great. I love (laughs) that. Yeah. Now the the show premieres. Oh, where did you guys premiere? It was like at a small, smaller regional house, right? Yeah. So it was in uh, Two River Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. And according to the internet. Like it went okay. It went. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I would, here's how I would characterize it. The show itself went great. The process was great. And the actual, um, the actual production was fantastic. And we were all really proud of it. And there was tons of buzz around it, you know, and like at Mm. that, at that time, you know, when we premiered in June of 2015, I had been in the I had been in the business probably like you know 10ish years, and uh, I had had a lot of shows that that had opened and had a lot of pre pre opening buzz, and it was like, oh, is this show gonna like do the thing and you know go to New York and go to Broadway yeah, and right. and then every single one of those shows they opened and they got they got shitty reviews and it just killed the show, killed the show 100, mm. percent killed the buzz, show dead. And so being more chill, it was like, oh, this is the one. This is the one that's going to do the thing and go to New York, go to Broadway. And so we opened then, and the New York Times came out to Red Bank, New Jersey to review it because they wanted to. Oh, my gosh. And they, uh, and they gave it a terrible review, and it killed the show. And so the, the thing that was like the it's just okay was that because it was, everyone, the, was the New York Times. Thank you so much. Yeah. And it was like it, everyone yeah. felt so positive about it. And it was really sort of moving audiences. And then that just that just killed it. And it's just that is the sad state of our business. And there is nothing that makes me more furious than when people do the reviews don't matter. And because they just simply do. I am here to tell you they do. Mm. I wish they didn't. And I would love to help create a theater 
you know, industry and world where the, there's less reliance on that particular review. But until I have a Hamilton size hit, I can do absolutely nothing about that. And so I'm at the mercy yeah, yeah. of this world that we live in. And so the show, <laughs> you know, so the show closed and the magic thing that happened was that the fella who was the head of the board at Two River, the great late uh, Bob Recknitz, he loved the show. He thought that it was so great. And he said that this, this score is fantastic and deserves to be preserved. And so he flat out paid for the original cast recording to be made. And what? that's an extraordinary thing because it costs so much money to make an album of a show because of all of the, the union stuff and which is all great, but it just, it's, it's prohibitively expensive on, you know, unless yeah. you are someone with access to great sums of money, you just could, could never make an album from a show like ours, but Bob just paid for it. And so Ghostlight put it out and we recorded it right after we closed in, you know, top of July, uh, 2015 and got released and it it for two years just kind of sat there in the way that most musical theater cast albums do or, or did at the time and then mm -hmm. after a couple of years people just sort of discovered it and got really excited about it and listened to it a lot and to use a gross word it kind of went viral and that's how i was able to get a producer interested in it to do it in new york off broadway and that's kind of the you know in a nutshell story origin story of the show that's incredible so that's yeah. why it took like from 2015 to 2019 when you opened on broadway was because it had to find its audience and then yeah. get a new production and then transfer yeah. from there yeah but and you know it was, it was so wild because at the time when it was very clear to me that there was massive interest in this show online, I was like, okay, because I'm, I'm, I'm like a real hustler. You know, I'm not a writer who yeah. like writes his stuff and just sends it out into the world and is like, oh, I hope something happens. I like pound the pavement to try to get people New to Yorker. do my shows. We've, I'm a New Yorker. we've discussed this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm pounding literal New York pavement to get my shit on a page. <laughs> and so I, you know, I was going to producers. I was going to regional theaters and being like, this, this album is being streamed more than any other cast album has ever been streamed. And this show played for four weeks in New Jersey. And these kids are listening to it. They don't even realize that wow. it's not playing somewhere. And nobody cared. Like when I tell you producers were not interested, theaters were not They're interested. They're like, what's streaming? Literally, yes. People people were so awful to me. And so like, <laughs> oh, that's that's cute. Somebody tweeted about your show, whatever that means. Like so awful. Oh, there was gosh. no context. I mean, and it's like, this was only a few years ago. But at the time, there was no context for, you know, streaming numbers are real. And so it was really hard to get anyone interested in it, which is why it was like, it so felt like a, you know, it felt like a miracle that um, Jerry Goring, who was the lead producer in, in New York, that he was like, oh, I'll take a chance on this and, and run it off Broadway for 10 weeks because we just had no idea if anyone would come mm -hmm. and no people were not, you know, banging down the door. And it's so, and that sort of like disconnect is one of the funniest things to me about Be More Chill. You know, even now kids sort of talk about that show in the same breath as like Dear Evan Hansen and Hamilton and all of these other shows. And it's like, we were so not that, you know, like, it's like, we, that just wasn't, you know, we, we were never at that level, you know, ever, but it's, it's, you know, for young people, it's like, they just receive media in a different way. Um, and I, I think it's cool, but it's just, 100%. it's such a wild thing. Yeah. I remember I was directing a show at the time and it was one of the first times I felt 
oh, I'm old now. And it was because <laughs> it was because I saw a younger generation freaking out about a show in the same way that I had freaked out mm-hmm. a couple decades earlier about, I don't know, Lacusa's Wild Party or something like that, right? Yeah. Like they they were all at their phones, you yeah. know, chatting about chatting about the show and it was yeah. so exciting and cute to see and I know a lot of them that went to New York to go see it from the West Coast. I love um, that. So then you guys open in 2019. Yeah. Uh, you get you get your Tony nomination. You run for a couple months. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had an incredible cast, including future Academy Award nominee Stephanie Hsu from mm-hmm. uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yeah. Uh, how, what did you gain from that whole experience going to the Broadway? Was it everything you dreamed of? Was it nothing... It was it was very hard. It was a very hard experience. My favorite time with Be More Chill was um, it was when we were off Broadway and it felt like there was real momentum around us. It was off Broadway looking toward Broadway. That was my favorite time. That was the time where it felt like there was real hope. You know, it was a, it was a crazy thing because when we opened or when we were when we were going into the signature, which is the theater, you know, that we did the the run off Broadway. I yeah. had said to myself, you cannot put any pressure on this run of this show. Meaning, do not look at this run like a tryout for Broadway. Look yeah. at this run like you're getting to do this musical that you really care about, that you thought was dead in New York City for 10 weeks. And at that point, I hadn't had a show in New York in, I think, like eight years or something. Blood Song of Love was my last one. I had... You know, I worked a ton in regional, but I hadn't had a show mm-hmm. where I could like, you know, be in my own bed and, and go to the show. And so I was like, just appreciate mm-hmm. this. Don't put anything on it. And so I tried to do that. But as soon as we put tickets on sale, the ticket sales for Off-Broadway were like nuts, right? Because it was the first time anyone yeah. was getting to see Be More Chill since falling in love with it. And immediately when that started, people started being like, oh my God, this this could go to Broadway. This, you know, you know. people started yeah. putting that on. And so then as soon as people start putting that on it, because of the way theater works, then it became, you know, if this gets a good times review, this is, this is going to go to Broadway because you have the sales. All you, makes need my stomach that, hurt. all you need is that times review. And so then, then off Broadway, you know, previews and all of that, for me, it just kept being like, please, please theater gods have us have a good enough times review to to make a Broadway move happen because we have the ticket sales, we have the enthusiasm, all of that. And uh, of course we opened uh, Off-Broadway and we got another brand new Times Review that was even worse than the first one. It was awful. <gasps> and it, it was so extreme where the opening night of Be More Chill Off-Broadway, people came up to me in the same way that they came, have come up to me at funerals for my family members. They came up to me <laughs> seriously and said, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, but I'm sorry is, for your loss. Honestly, yeah, that's how oh, that's how gosh. on the surface it was. You know what I mean? And so when that happened, I was really devastated, and I I really just felt like you know this is just so it's just so soul crushing. And uh, Jennifer Ashley Tepper, uh, who's the co-producer with Jerry Grant, Twitter legend, Twitter legend, and one of my, my best best friends, she <laughs> was the only person who said no. We're not doing this. We're not doing this thing that everyone always does. We got this. And I, I didn't believe it. I thought it was just her, you know, being resolute. And a couple weeks later, I was told that, you know, they had a meeting with the Schuberts and that we were going to go to Broadway. 
And it was, it's still something that I, I think about almost every day because I was so sure that this show would not get to Broadway after our first New York Times review at, at Two River. And I, I was even more sure after our second New York Times review off Broadway. And just the fact that we got there, even though we didn't hit any of the things a show like our show is supposed to hit and had always mm-hmm. hit in order to get to Broadway. The fact that we got there anyway really made me feel like, you know what? Anything is possible. And it's so weird to say that about like my own show, but it's like, it's, it's, no. I, I know, you know, it's like, I know what happened. I know how like mom and pop we were. I know we had no, mm-hmm. you know, money and like we still, like we still did it. You know, we, <sighs> we, I, we had a respectable run on Broadway. We ran a few months and I, the best Absolutely. part, the best part of Broadway was, getting to interact with people who loved the show of which there was many. And, and of course, so many young people who were so moved by the show and also people who were not young who were moved by the show and getting to like actually Mm. engage with human beings who loved this, this new piece of musical theater was like the coolest thing. That was the best part about it. And the, you know, the part that I, that I still bristle at is there was a real sense of like, certain people in the theater sort of like um, looking down on the show and sort of turning up their mm-hmm. noses at the show and, and making, making it feel like the show was like beneath them because it was yeah. about young people and because young people loved it so much. And that, Oof. that still is something that makes me insane. I remember at the, the time, gatekeeping of that. Oh, uh, the gate. It's just, it's re- really embarrassing for, for the theater, I think. But, uh, something that made me made me nuts was that you know people would talk about people made such a big deal about the audience would be more chill being loud and singing along all these things that never really happened right they never really happened the audience would be more chill actually was fucking incredible because they loved the show so much that they didn't want to disturb it and they wanted to watch it they wanted to watch it and yes they would react (laughs) to things but they always reacted appropriately and I have been too many musicals where the, act, where the audience did not. But the, I remember, you know, when we were when we were in our run, right? And and I just kept hearing that, like, oh, these kids singing along. I went to see the Temptations musical, which was in previews because I, I want to see all the shows that season. In the Temptations musical, every fucking person around me singing along at full volume to these Temptation songs, and I realized, oh, it's okay for the gatekeepers if if it's your song if it's your song if it's your old ass song that you know (laughs) from the radio you have no problem you don't feel the need to comment on people singing along you only want to comment when it's people singing along to brand new show tunes that aren't based on previously existing ip you don't know oh it makes me it makes me insane still all of my shows in 2019 which all got terrible reviews by the new york times my audience was reviewed more than my shows and even Ugh. for even for love and hate nation which is a show I, I care about deeply which got a bad new york times review the critic felt it necessary to talk about people singing the songs in the bathroom as if it was a negative <gasps> like during the show and i still it's still something that that is so hurtful and mind-blowing to me that in today's day and age when more than half of the songs we hear on broadway are songs that came from 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 the radio or whatever the radio is now pre-existing yeah. to to knock people singing along to musical theater songs that they have heard for the first time for the first time in a theater is so 
it's just it's it's repugnant it's to me. beyond silly <laughs> it's so That's embarrassing. so frustrating yeah well age poorly, oh gosh I assure you yeah I'm so sorry, but no, also right. thank you Good. for thank you for that because we need to hear it. I yeah. didn't realize that that had happened. Yeah, it's crazy. It's so dumb. Yeah. Hey, listeners, have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii, so now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell. And now it's up to you. It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is because it's May and we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together and Factors Fresh Never Frozen Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50, that's musical theater with an E-R, and use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. With the time that we have left, I want to go through the show a little bit so that if people don't know it, they can be introduced to it. And also I have some questions about, you know, some of some of your stuff because it's really interesting. Yeah. So the show Be More Chill follows the character Jeremy, mm-hmm. uh, not exactly a popular kid, like we said, misfit. Uh, he has there's a girl that he pines for who is a drama nerd. She, uh, her name's Christine. Mm-hmm. He has a nerdy best friend named Michael. The cast recording is wonderful and everybody sounds great. But I also wanted to ask you, these don't sound like typical theater voices. Yeah. And that had to be on purpose, right? A hundred percent. I gravitate towards people who sound like like people and not robots. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you feel it. You feel the authenticity from the performers. So the opening number is called More Than Survive. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me about this number? Because it kind of feels like a a two for one. We get a little bit of an I want song and an opening number if we're using, you know, musical theater terminology. Um, Yeah, for sure. You know, More Than Survive was the first song that I wrote for Be More Chill. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Which isn't... That never happened. (laughs) I know. It's like, it's kind of a rare thing. But I just, and I think it was, it was because I had such a clear idea of what I thought this musical should be and how it should move and and how it should feel and what its sense of humor is. And yeah, I just wanted to write this big sprawling opening that did exactly what you said, that sort of was both, you know, classic opening number that established the environment and also was an I want song and, and also introduced you to all of the characters. And so we sort of Mm. get it out of the way. You know, I thought a lot about um, there, uh, Donnie Darko, which is a movie I love a lot. There's the, you know, yes. the scene when they're sort of flying through the halls of the high through school. Through the school. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I thought a lot about that, even though that's that's kind of a wordless scene, just this idea of sort of like spinning all around the, you know, the school and his day and just tr- tracking him uh, in sort of hyperspeed throughout, throughout the day and getting a sense of both Jeremy's hangups and his sense of humor and the show's sense of humor um i just wanted to establish that and i i love the idea of beginning this musical with a kid uh and with a bad internet connection looking at porn that felt like a really trying to download yeah (laughs) right before school yeah you know it just no it felt very uh very relatable to me and i I imagine (laughs) that others would relate to it as well (laughs) absolutely i 
I, these lyrics are really great. I wanted to read these. I don't want to be a baller, just want some skills to count on. If my nuts were any smaller, they would be totally gone. If I continue at this rate, the only thing I'll ever date is my MacBook Pro hard drive. I don't want to be a Clooney, I just want to survive. We get to know so much about him from from that little section. Yeah. Once again, going to, this is not somebody who wants to change the world, right? No. He doesn't want to do anything big. No. And that's that's so that's so relatable speaking of relatable what's great is that his his uh best friend michael who's just this great cheerleader he's the first one to remind him like don't worry we, yes we're kind of low on the food chain but evolution has always been survival of the fittest but now that's all changed because of technology we, <laughs> we don't have to be super strong to survive so like there's never been a better time in history to be a loser I, <laughs> and when i read that line i mean i immediately think of conversations that i've had with people i love about how uh how technology has in many ways accelerated the amount of uh, stress and anxiety that we experience and so then you can sometimes feel like the only two options are either reject technology altogether mm-hmm. or use technology to help you deal with the stress a- aka medicine antidepressants uh mm-hmm. things that have been created to help us now deal with the technological society we've created and like that's what this show is right is that now jeremy in this state mm-hmm. wanting to be with christine uh feels like he needs to level up in a way and hears about this new technology in the form of a pill. The pill is called the Squip S Q U I P, which I always forget what it stands for. What is it? Um, um uh, super, super quantum uh, unit Intel processor. Well done. Thank it's you. like you wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> This pill comes to his attention because of Rich, who's this short, cocky kid who bullies Jeremy all the time. And they get into this conversation where Rich confesses that the only reason he walks around with so much confidence is because he took this pill. Basically, it's a a computer and a pill. It goes to your brain and then tells you everything to say and do in order for you to get where you want. Mm -hmm. So Jeremy learns that he can go get one from the guy who works at Payless Shoes. (laughs) which i love uh he and michael head to the mall and they blow a lot of money on on the squip um now where's jeremy's family through all of this jeremy's family is uh he comes from uh, a home where his mom is not there he's living with his dad uh who is severely depressed uh and who does Mm. not does not wear pants and so he is a pantsless. It's like the sign of his depression. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is just a pantsless father, um, and and so he is just kind of he's kind of adrift. You know, it's like Jeremy mm. has. It's like his home life is not terrible. It's just not. It's just not really like happening. He's not. He doesn't have a lot of help. Not an anchor. No. Yeah. I think that that's also where he finds some uh, some need for some help. Uh, he goes to get the squip, which looks like a silver tic-tac, if you want to picture mm-hmm. it that way. Yep. And in maybe the most realistic detail of this entire plot, in order to activate it, you have to drink Mountain Dew. Yes, uh, Green Mountain Dew. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's Mountain Dew. So <laughs> when it's activated, Jeremy gets this new companion, the squip, who, uh, if we're talking about it theatrically, appears on stage in the form of what, like a Keanu Reeves type is, I think, what, what yeah, it says. Yeah, your squip looks like it's, it, you, 
you choose your own who, who your script looks like. Your script presents to you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Based on you know whoever you you want to see it as, and so Jeremy's script looks a little like Keanu Reeves. <laughs> love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, since Jeremy wants to you know be in love and live happily ever after with Christine, she's a drama nerd, and so he, like so many straight boys in the theater, decides <laughs> to join the school play in order to be around her. Unfortunately, who also joins the school play is the most popular kid, Jake, who yeah. also uh, shows an interest in Christine. And so now, like in order to compete with this guy the squip really steps up his power, if you will, and says, look, you're going to need an upgrade. You need to date a popular girl to, you know, make Christine jealous or, or level up your popularity. You need to get rid of nerdy Michael, your friend. And the good news is that both of those things are super easy because I can do it for you. I'll turn off your optic nerve so you don't even see Michael. <laughs> you won't feel bad about ignoring him. And I'll let you know exactly what to say to get with this popular girl, Brooke. What do you say? And the end of the first act is the deal with the devil. Yeah. Is Jeremy saying, all right, let's do it. Yeah. I want to encourage everybody to go listen to the the cast recording if they haven't, because you you guys did it in a way where you can follow the story and also enjoy all of the great songs that are that are mixed up in there. At the top of the second act, though, uh, we get a Halloween party, um, mm -hmm. which, funny enough, another musical about teenagers also has a halloween party in it go figure right um which, uh, which musical is that isn't it mean girls yeah yeah, yeah. i was spinning oh are you being facetious okay <laughs> yeah yeah well it's i mean because the uh, halloween party it's that's a that's such a teen movie trope you it's know? such so a teen thing yeah. absolutely yeah this halloween party is epic though because it uh it ends it ends with rich uh, who, of course, took the squip in in the first place, going a little crazy. Yeah. Not to mention Brooke's best friend, like frenemy, tries to hook up with Jeremy, mm -hmm. uh, who used to be dating Jake. And so then Jake's trying to kill him. Like, there's all of this drama happening at the Halloween party. Jeremy leaves early. He escapes out of there, only to find out the next day that Rich burned down the house. Yes. Like, literally burned down the house. Now, this is some of my favorite stuff that you put in here. Uh, with your permission, can I play just a little section for our listeners? Oh, please do. R-I-C-H, can't you see? Just how much I care about your tragedy. I changed my profile pic to you. Now I fully understand what you're going through. R-I-C-H, it's a drag. I read she read, they read you're in a body bag. I love this section so much because it, it it's musicalizing something that is so specific to this new generation of the performative nature of tragedy mm -hmm. in order to gain what attention or yeah. a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's fantastic. This whole school that's worried, I say in quotes, about this fire that has ended with Rich in the hospital and Jake with two casts on his legs. What we find out is that Rich was looking, he, he was going crazy trying to figure out a way to turn off the squib. And what do, and would you mind telling us exactly how one does turn off the squib? Um, yes, you need to ingest Mountain Dew Red, <laughs> which is, um, was, which, which, and, and at the time of the musical, 
has been discontinued. So it's really rare. Thank goodness, because that there's nothing good that could have come from that food coloring. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember Pepsi Clear. Uh, that was a very specific Same. New Year's Eve party and didn't care for it. But uh, but apparently in the same sort of instance, Mountain Dew Red is this, you know, special form of, of the beverage that actually turns off the squip. So Michael, being the amazing friend that he is, mm-hmm. is able to track down this Mountain Dew Red, but yes. not before he sings Michael in the Bathroom at, mm-hmm. at the party. Now, this is the probably the most popular song of the whole show. For sure. It's certainly the song that is, uh, it's a, it's everyone's gateway drug and to be more chill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a terrific song about he's in the bathroom at the party trying mm-hmm. to figure out what is his life. When you wrote it, did you, were you like, oh, this is the earworm? Like, do you ever have a sense of that? No, I, 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 I have a sense of like, oh, this song is exactly what I intended it to be. And I feel good mm. about that. You know, and a song, a lot of times, you know, when the song is like, when it, you know, Michael in the Bathroom is a very clean song in that it's, um, it's uh, middle end. beginning, middle end. The structure is very pronounced. The, uh, the, the rhymes are, are pretty clean. The, the lines are pretty uniform. And so uh, I had a satisfaction of, oh, yeah, this is like a nice little, you know, brick shithouse of a song. And, and, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's what I wanted it to be. It's really that. It's the thing of like, I, you know. When I finished it, it was like, this is exactly what I intended to write. This is exactly the moment I intended to write for this character. Um, had no idea that it would sort of turn into what it turned into. And really, that's, that, that becomes, you know, because of the collaboration of, of the song and the, and the performer. And, and George, George Salazar, know, Salazar it. doing it was like that. He, he, he brought a level of operatic drama to the song that sure. I think was it was it was in there under the surface and he really brought it out without sacrificing the humor of the song and it's just one of those like magic things where you know I didn't write the song with George in mind but as soon as he sang it for the first time it was like oh yeah this is Home I wrote it, I, yeah I wrote it with him without no, even you know realizing that I did how cool it's yeah. a great number I Thanks. I refer to it all the time so the show ends with Michael saving the day, bringing mm-hmm. um, bringing Jeremy the Mountain Dew Red to not only get rid of his squib, but the squibs that have been planted into everybody in this high school production of Midsummer Night's Dream, which ironically has been put into a post-apocalyptic zombie setting. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and so it's able to turn off all of the squibs. What are we left with? Oh, this last song. What is the name of the last song? Um, uh, voices, voices, voices in, my, in head? my head. Yeah, it's so smart because we have we all have voices in our heads, whether it's our parents, whether it's yeah. our friends, whether it's our the NBA player that we you know worship, whatever it is. We have these influences, but it's like, are they the people that we love, or is it going to be the technology that we take in? And and the song itself, it's a little bit bluegrass meets weezer like i I don't know i can't quite figure out but you have a lot of cool reference points that feel very different from the rest of the score yeah um so can you talk to me about this final this finale yeah for sure i think that um i mean for starters you know the idea behind the song was exactly what you said that it's it's you know it's not about 
turning off the voices in our head because even at the end of the show after you know the squip has been sort of you know triumphed over he's still there you know he still makes a little mm. appearance because it's it's not about vanquishing these voices that's about figuring out which ones to listen to and so we wanted to <laughs> we wanted to end that song end the show with that sentiment and you know the show does in a really sort of light humorous way but it definitely does deal with really heavy things like anxiety and depression <laughs> and suicide and all this stuff and i always i hate pieces of art especially musicals that that deal in any kind of mental illness and the and the end is always like these characters who like finally see the light and they're finally able to like <laughs> overcome their mental illness as if like if you're just loved enough then you can stop being mentally ill and it's just so right. it's so phony and so pandering. you know it's pandering and like kind of cynical to me you know and so it's like listen you're going to you're going to have these issues and and maybe you'll figure out a way through them or maybe you won't but even with them you can still have a fulfilling happy great life and that's why at the end of the show is you know like as you said that you know voices in my head kind of sounds different from everything else and for the for the majority of the song it has this kind of like chilled out acoustic-y guitar rock which is yeah. different from the rest of the score which is so aggressive and so synth driven mm. and you know the the score intentionally feels very electronic and very just maximalist just like you know stuff everywhere yes. and 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 that last song i I'd, I'd like to think that Jeremy at the end of this whole ordeal is just a little bit calmer just a little bit just the tiniest bit more at ease more comfortable and so that was yeah. where you know that's where the the idea for the musical change came in but the you know the very 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 end of the show you know we sort of get back into this rock rocked out place and that's really like, um, it, you know, Stephen Brackett, our amazing director, always said, you know, that the show ends with um, a big dance party, but it's a dance party with your own neuroses. You know, it's just kind of like, it's it's like... <laughs> Making it, peace with the crazy. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, I, I, loved, I loved that idea so much that it's like, you know, yeah, you're going through all of this stuff and everyone has problems. And whether, you know, you sort of have named conditions or unnamed conditions whatever you're dealing with you can still have a dance party and you can still celebrate life even if you're not quote-unquote cured you know that's great yeah that's inspiring that's inspiring it inspires I think me so me too and then it's fun on top of it because you got the come on go it's fun go. It's a musical. Um, it's a musical comedy. Which now that I know like what a New Yorker you are, that that's the voice in your head. That's the pounding the pavement voice. Go, go, come on, come on, get to it, do it, do, what it, are you, do it. What are you waiting for? <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Joe, thank you so much for doing this with me. What a freaking pleasure to hear from the source. Yeah. Um, and congrats. Me. Congrats on creating something that really spoke, I think, to a generation. And that is ultimately very grateful to be represented in our musical theater art form. I'm very grateful to be a part of something that uh, connects with so many people. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. 
Don't forget the best way you can support the show is by giving us a nice review and rating wherever you might be listening. But if you want to go the extra mile and receive bonus content made exclusively for you, you can subscribe to Patreon! Exclamation point! For only $1 a month, we always have a lot of fun on Patreon exclamation point. So come and join us. Uh, we're also on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Check out our content that we're always very proud to present and give to you. Uh, what else? Oh, our tea Public Store, which has great designs and the profits we receive from all of those orders we give to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. I'm looking for a new design this summer. Uh, so all calling all you talented Photoshop folk who might be listening, uh, give us a great design and you'll it'll be going toward a great cause. All in all, I always want to thank you for being a member and part of this beautiful podcasting community. So grateful for you all. Hey, Mr. Joe Iconis, talk to us about how we get tickets. What's what's new for you? Anything you want to plug? Yeah, go uh, definitely come check out the Untitled Unauthorized Hunter S. Thompson musical at La Jolla Playhouse, starring uh, many B. Chill alums like George Salazar and Jason Sweetsuit Williams and Lauren Marcus. Uh, that's amazing. amazing. Yeah, end of August through October. Go to the La Jolla Playhouse website. Tickets are already selling pretty fast. Uh, and I'm, I'm doing an Iconis and Family gig uh, in September in Los Angeles, California, September oh, 25th where at? Uh, at the Bourbon Room. Monday, yes, September 25th. Yeah, so come check that Broadway out. Broadway at the Bourbon Room, people. Broadway at the Bourbon Room. A bunch of folks from Hunter will be there, and some folks from New York City are flying in, so it's going to be a big blowout, Iconis and Family Show. And our That's album, amazing. yeah, that came out last year, called Album, is going to be released on vinyl on August 18th. And so, what? yeah, it's, uh, it's like a really gorgeous box set. It's five LPs, 10 sides, three and a half hours wow. plus of music. Uh, so, you know, obviously stream the album, which is out now, but if you want, pick up a copy of that vinyl, go to the Ghostlight website or any of my social media and it will direct you to uh, where you can pre-order and then you can get this huge ass vinyl set and, uh, use it to, <laughs> you could use it to put cheese on like a cheese plate. You could use it to defend yourself. Charcuterie. Against attackers. Absolutely. Yeah, so many uses, even if you don't have a vinyl player. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Congratulations on everything. Um, Everybody out there, thank you for listening. And uh, take a breath, you know, remember to be more chill. (laughs) Well said. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.